0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 98 by Rudolf Steiner. It's the Listener's Notes to 18 Lectures. Entitled Nature and Spirit Beings, their activity in our visible world, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is lecture seventeen, given in Munich on the fourteenth of june nineteen oh eight, entitled Elemental Beings and Other Higher Spiritual Beings, Spiritual Beings of the Kingdoms of Nature. If we have often emphasized that the spiritual scientific worldview should not remain something abstract, something conceptual, not only something that we present as our worldview in moments of celebration in life to satisfy our inner soul needs, but that it should be something that deeply affects our whole life and existence from morning to night. Then this becomes particularly clear to us when we consider the relationships and conditions of spiritual beings and the spiritual world in general, which always surround us in relation to us, to this life of ours. What we might call the physiognomy of outer life only becomes comprehensible to the human being when they can gain an insight into that which gives rise to this physiognomy of existence from the spiritual world. Just as we only begin to understand the physiognomy of a person when we know their soul, when we know how to interpret their gaze and explain their facial expressions, so too the outer world, in its large and small phenomena, becomes comprehensible to us when we learn to know what underlies it spiritually. We can already understand a great deal if we follow and observe life at every turn with our eyes sharpened by spiritual science. If I may start the introduction with an insight that impressed itself upon me recently, it is only to help us find our way into the mood of today's reflection. I have often drawn your attention to the remarkable way how in the destiny of the world, in historical karma, things have become interlinked in European culture. I have pointed out to you how in the Nordic mystery world, in the mystery world of the Druids, A certain tragic trait prevailed in their teaching. In the old pre-Christian mystery world, the pupils were introduced to high spiritual wisdom, high spiritual science. But they were also always made aware of something. They were made aware that the view of the spiritual world, which it was possible to convey, especially in northern and northwestern Europe, would experience a special illumination through an event of the future. They prophetically pointed to the subsequent appearance of Christ. And the whole of European culture becomes comprehensible to us when we follow the peculiar threads of how Christianity wove itself into what remained of the old Nordic views about the spirit world, how Christianity threaded itself into them. And sometimes small outer facts appear to us like symptoms. They are more than symptoms, real testimonies, of what is happening inwardly. And to the person who follows the fine threads, the physiognomy of the outer events is thereby deciphered. Thus, on one of my most recent lecture tours, it really did arise vividly before my soul how in the regions of the North, in Sweden and Norway, the residual effects of the old Nordic spirit world play into a spiritual view of everything there is to the left and right of the train, how they can still be perceived in every single thing. And then you feel something very special, when in the midst of these echoes of the old Nordic world of the gods, something appears which points to strange karmic connections in history. In the midst, so to speak, of these echoes of the old Nordic spirit world, an impressive picture presents itself. When you get to Uppsala, and are in the midst of what we might call things that are more reminiscent of the Old Nordic Mystery World, you encounter in the midst of it the first Germanic translation of the Bible by Ulfalas, this wonderful document of the penetration of Christianity into the European world. Even if we do not go into the special spiritual circumstances, we will feel something of the karmic situation when we remember that this document was first in Prague, then captured in the Swedish War and brought to this place at that time by remarkable circumstances. This first translation of the Bible into Germanic seems to us like a living monument to the penetration of Christianity into the old Nordic spiritual world. Thus everything comes to life, everything becomes explicable from within, if we really regard the things we encounter as the outer expression of inner spiritual facts. And so today we want to set before our souls many things that show us outer events and outer facts as a consequence, as a physiognomic expression of inner spiritual beings and events, of facts of such spiritual beings and events. If we take an overview over the life of a person, we will first notice in our materially thinking times that we actually only study and pay attention to those connections which are really broadly outwardly visible. Something is called harmful when we can see with our eyes the harm it does, useful when we can see with our eyes the benefit, in a broad sense. That spiritual facts, such spiritual facts as are connected with human life, occur in between the sensory events of life, in between our sensory bodies, so to speak, will become clear to us in particular If we begin by taking into consideration, in the first part, certain actions of beings which play into our world with their effects, which human beings naturally do not perceive with their physical senses, but which have deep significance for the whole of human life. We can only consider a certain kind of of such beings, since there are many. The space around us is not only filled with air, but with spiritual beings of the most diverse kind. There are those we call elemental beings. They can be characterized by the fact that the majority of them do not have that which actually makes a human being human, namely a moral sense of responsibility. They cannot have this. They are organized in such a way that they cannot be made responsible in a moral sense. You must not believe that these beings who move in and out of our bodies, at least a certain kind of them, do not have intelligence, intellect, Some of them are very clever beings, beings that are not at all inferior to human beings as far as cleverness and intellect are concerned. Let us first look at those beings who are to be found in the higher worlds, but who have a certain relationship with human beings themselves, which has an effect in life. Let us consider this. We take it for granted that the human being actually lives in two states, within 24 hours, the normal person of today alternates between the waking daytime state and the sleeping state and we know from our earlier observations that during the day the human being is regularly composed of four elements the physical body, the etheric body the astral body and the eye and that at night when the human being falls asleep the physical and etheric bodies remain in bed and the astral body moves out with the eye capital now We have also heard that these four elements of the human body find their expression in the physical body. We know that the eye finds its expression in the blood. The blood in its movements is nothing other than the material manifestation of the eye. In the same way, the nervous system is the material manifestation of the astral body. The glands of the etheric body and the physical body have, so to speak, its own manifestation. If you remember this you will be able to understand that the human nervous system in the physical body is nevertheless formed in such a way that it can only exist if it is permeated by the astral body, for it is organized by the latter, depends on it. This astral body is its creator and sustainer. It can only live under the influence of the astral body. In the same way, the blood is connected with the eye. Think what happens when you desert your physical body every night. You leave your nervous system in the physical body and take out the astral body, which is its foster father. You leave the thing which this astral body has to look after to its own devices. In the same way, your eye departs and leaves the blood on its own. Human beings do this every night. They leave their physical body, or rather the nervous and blood systems, to their own devices. But the latter could not exist if things depended only on them. For they must, as they are, be permeated in the human form by an astral body, just as the blood must be permeated by something that is like the eye. Now, what you yourself do not do, look after your nervous system, other beings must do. Therefore you see how at the moment that the astral body and the eye move out of the physical and etheric body, higher beings from higher realms move in. They lower their astrality into the nervous system and supply nerves and blood. Every night the physical body is taken possession of by that which moves down from higher worlds when the human being deserts their body. So that we can say, astral substantialities which create the physical and etheric body, which are involved in its creation, take possession of it again when the human being leaves it. In doing so, they find them in a different state from the one in which they originally delivered them to the human being. Human beings were in them with their astral body and eye, and worked on them. And here are the spiritual beings, from higher regions of the cosmos, find effects which do not correspond at all to their higher spirituality, which are the after-effects of what the human being brings about during the day in their physical body from out of their astrality and eye. Now, a materialistic way of looking at things is not very subtle, but when we enter into the mysterious facts of the spiritual world, we find that quite other effects are there right down into the physical body. We cannot have a thought, a sentiment, or a feeling without these expressing their effects as far as into the physical body. Even if the anatomist cannot prove it, every sentiment, every form of feeling brings about a certain change in the structure of the physical body. And this is then found by those beings which lower themselves into the human being. Of particular importance are those effects which are exerted on our physical body by all that the human being has in their soul by way of lies, slander, hypocrisy. The materialistic way of thinking believes that lies, slander and hypocrisy are only harmful as long as they can be observed externally. This is not so, but very subtle effects, though not perceptible to a microscopic apparatus, extend to the physical body. When the soul then departs in sleep, the effects remain in the physical body, and these are found by the beings. And We must consider here not only those soul experiences, which in the gross sense are called lies, slander, hypocrisy, but also the subtle, conventional lies, for example those which society today makes necessary, lying out of politeness or manners, and the whole scale that can be cited of insincerity and hypocrisy and small slanders even in thought. All this comes to expression in the effects on the physical body and this is found by these descending beings. And something particular is brought about through the fact that this is inside the physical body at night. As a result, pieces of the substance of these beings which descend into the body, are always torn off. Certain parts of the higher beings have to cut themselves off as a result. The consequence of lies and hypocrisy and slander during the day is the cutting off of certain beings at night, which thus have a certain relationship to the physical human body. These beings thereby gain an independent existence in the spiritual world surrounding us, They are beings which we count as belonging to the class of phantoms. Phantoms are such spiritual beings which in their external appearance are the physiognomic expressions, in a certain way replicas, of the human bodily parts and form. They are of such thin materiality that the physical eye cannot see them, but they are, so to speak, of physical form. The clairvoyant sees pieces of human heads, human hands, whole figures buzzing through the air. Indeed, they see the inside of human bodies buzzing around, the stomach, the heart. They see all the phantoms which have become detached in that the human being has passed on to their physical body that which is the result of lies, hypocrisy and slander. Such phantoms which constantly buzz through our spiritual space will be proof to you that human life itself is the cause of beings which in no way have a particularly positive effect on the human being. For they have intelligent qualities in a certain respect and no moral responsibility. They eke out their existence by placing obstacles in the way of human life, many more obstacles than what we call bacteria. Something else indeed takes place. Important pathogens are to be sought in such beings. For if these phantoms are created by the human being, then they find in bacilli and bacteria a very good opportunity for their existence. They find nourishment in them, so to speak. They would more or less dry up in their spiritual being if this nourishment were not there. But these bacteria are in turn created by them in a certain sense. Because they are there, these beings of the physical world are something that can serve a purpose. Thus something that is needed, in a certain sense, is also there, as the result of mysterious causes. So we might say that the human being creates an army of spiritual beings, of the class of phantoms, through lies, slander, hypocrisy. It is similar with the etheric body, which human beings leave at night. This they have also set up for their life in such a way that the etheric body can only exist as a human etheric body when it is permeated by higher beings, when their own astrality is outside. Those beings enter the etheric body. We must bear this in mind. But then it will be understandable to us that certain processes of our soul life produce effects in the etheric body which remain in the night and give cause, according to the pattern of the etheric body, to cut off entities from the being which descends into it. The processes of the soul which produce such beings are processes which are brought about in human coexistence by what we can call bad laws, wrong measures. All sorts of things that the soul experiences as wrongful through lawful effects in the interaction between human beings have an effect on the soul in such a way that at night the after-effect remains in the etheric body, cutting off those beings we call specters. This is the second type of being which belongs to the kind that the human being creates. Then we must consider that the matter is also reversed. That which departs at night, the astral body, is organized in such a way that it is dependent on being inside the nervous system. If it is outside, then it is not in its proper place. Then it too must be looked after from higher worlds. Higher guardian spirits must unite with it. And from these too something can in turn be cut off by human soul activity, by particular soul processes, by that which we might describe as quote, giving wrong advice, close quote, imposing wrong advice on the other, as forming prejudices which are not sufficiently well founded, as persuading a person by treating their soul in such a way that they do not leave agreement to them, but drive them by force, as it were, to a conviction to which we are fanatically devoted. If this is done from one person to another, then an effect remains in the astral body during the night which cuts off from higher beings certain entities which we count among the class of demons. They are produced in the way described by the fact that people do not face each other with the attitude that can be expressed in the words I will tell the other what I mean, whether they agree with it is their own business. A hundred kinds of demon are created at the gaming table, at the get-together, which in German regions is called a gentleman's evening, at coffee-table gossip, where the attitude which comes from inner tolerance very rarely prevails where the attitude prevails in which the individual says to themselves, if you don't want to be of my opinion, you are a fool. This action from soul to soul generates demons to the highest degree. Thus, spiritual beings literally arise from human life. They live in the spiritual world. And all these beings, phantoms, specters and demons, in turn have an effect On the human being. If an epidemic of this or that prejudice appears in our surroundings, this or that foolish fashion, then it is due to the demons who have been created by human beings and who all hold up the straight line of progress. The beings created by human beings always envelop and buzz around them. Thus we see how the human being delays their own progress in that they can create things in the spiritual world. We must become aware of the fact that everything we think and feel has effects which are just as significant, and indeed more significant in the grand scheme of things, than that which is brought about by firing a bullet. The latter may be bad, but it is only considered more dangerous than the former because people can perceive it with their gross senses, while they do not perceive the former. This is one part of the spiritual life which the human being as we might say, brings about themselves. Another part, the way human beings are involved in the interplay of the spiritual world, may be revealed to us in certain human cultural activities, which are also more than what they appear to be to the external senses. To understand this, you must realize that there are other beings than humans. Human beings appear in such a way that we say they have the physical body, as the lowest element of their being. Now there are beings who do not have such a gross physical body in their present stage of development, but have the etheric body as the lowest element of their being, but who are, in fact, here. Human beings can now bind such beings into their circles more than would happen without their intervention. Indeed, part of the development of culture consists in seeking to interact with these beings whose lowest element is the etheric body. Such interaction is created by the fact that human beings in a certain way create physical bodies which these beings can use to supplement themselves through them. In this way bridges connecting to these beings are built. Imagine in this flower basket, which stands here on the desk, a body which would correspond in its forms to certain forms of the etheric body of the higher beings we have been talking about. Then these would have the inclination to settle down there, to entwine the flower basket, to combine with it. We would see how this basket gives rise to spiritual beings descending, grasping it lovingly and feeling at ease to be able to descend in this way into the community of human beings. We need only create the appropriate forms, then we will create such bridges between us and such beings. And people have always done this in certain times, in one way or another. Thus, in the time of Greek culture, people actually had, to a high degree, the gift of establishing contact with the spiritual beings, which they called their gods. For these Greek gods are not figments of the popular imagination. But these Greek gods are real beings, are present, and are to be taken as beings, Zeus, Pallas Athena, and so on, who have the etheric body as their lowest element. And how did the Greeks bring these gods into their circle? In that they, the Greeks, acquired to a high degree what we can call an architectural sense of space. The person who studies space from the standpoint of spiritual science knows that this space is not the abstract void of which our ordinary mathematicians dream, our physicists and mechanics dream, but something very differentiated. It is something that has within itself lines, hither and thither, lines in all directions, force lines from top to bottom, from right to left, from front to back, straight and round, in all directions. There are pressure effects in space of a spiritual kind, tensile effects. In short, we can feel the space, penetrate it with the feelings. Here I have often used the example that those who have a sense of space know why certain old painters paint three angels floating so wonderfully true to nature so that those who have a sense of space know that these three angels hold each other like three cosmic bodies in space through their attraction. When the undeveloped person is told this, they arrive at the thought that the angels must fall down. They cannot grasp the fact that the angels support and hold each other. It is such mutually supporting, dynamic measures of which the ancients were conscious who still had a living feeling for that old clairvoyance which existed. It is quite different when you look at the kind of connection which you might find, for example, in a Böcklen painting. Without diminishing the other excellent qualities of the painting, to which there can be no objection, you find that strange angelic figure of which you have the feeling, if you have retained a living sense of space, that it must plop down, at any moment. In more recent times, the living sense of space has been lost. The Greeks had it as an architectural, as an artistic architectural idea. A Greek temple is a crystallized spatial idea in the purest sense of the word. The pillar that supports what lies on it horizontally or inclined is not something conceived but something that, for those who have a sense of space, already lies within the space and cannot be otherwise. The whole temple is born out of the concrete space. Anyone who sees the spatial lines can see this, and that person does not need to do anything other than add the stone where they see the lines in order to fill in with the physical material what is ideationally marked out. In the Greek temple the spirituality of space is completely transformed into a visible form. By creating the crystallized idea of space in this way, forms were created that enabled those spiritual beings who have the etheric body as their lowest element to descend into the closed space thus created and find an opportunity to be present in the forms of that space. It is therefore not mere imagination but the full truth, real truth, that the Greek temple was the dwelling place of the God. Yes, the God dwelt in it. He dwelt in it through the forms of the space. And it is the particular feature of the Greek temple that the invisible God descends and takes possession of the forms. In the Greek temple, you can imagine all people away. You can see no people far and wide, The place can be completely deserted by people, and yet the temple is not deserted. The God is within it. That is the particular feature of the Greek temple, but not of the Gothic cathedral. It is quite different when you think away the people in the Gothic cathedral and think of it as empty. Then it is not a whole. The Greek temple is a whole without the people. The Gothic cathedral only when it contains the congregation and when the folded hands are added to the pointed arches, when thoughts and feelings unite with the architectural forms. If you imagine them away, the Gothic cathedral is not a whole. This is how it differs from the Greek temple. It is a different architectural thought, born out of spiritual space in a grandiose way. But without people, it is not a whole. And then again, If it is spiritually populated, then spiritual beings of the kind described can descend when it is filled with a devout congregation, and so every architectural thought is concretely designed for something specific. The Egyptian pyramid is also designed in such a way that the soul which leaves the body may take the path which is marked out in the inner passages of such a pyramid the passage of the soul out of the body into the spiritual world is expressed there. In the Romanesque building, the idea of the tomb is expressed architecturally. A Romanesque church without a crypt is not whole if it cannot be conceived of as a vault that rises above corpses. That is part of it. It is born in this way out of the idea of the risen Savior. It is the building of veneration for the tomb of Jesus Christ. In this way you see that human beings build the bridge from the physical to the spiritual world through what they create in their forms. Even if it is not very comforting that human beings create an army of spiritual beings who stop their development, we may be reconciled when we see that human beings pave the way to higher spiritual beings through what they place into the world in the form of such architectural forms. And so it is no less with other works of visual art. It is the same with the works of sculpture and painting, that in their forms they give an opportunity to those beings which in their etheric forms are able to adapt themselves, as it were, to what is being created in order to place it around themselves. In the case of sculpture, it is more of an external arrangement, a surrounding of these sculptural works. In the case of architectural works, it is more of an inner filling. In painting, we come to other beings, to beings which have their lowest bodily element in very fine etheric matter. The person who understands this knows how astral, etheric beings feel at home, where the painter, in their harmony of color, in their linear forms, gives them the opportunity to come out of the spiritual world, into ours. Then there are spiritual beings, who have the astral body as their lowest element, who therefore consist of even finer substance. These beings again find the possibility of having community with human beings in those arts which express themselves in moving form, in music. A room filled with the sounds of music is an opportunity for spiritual beings to enter who have the astral body as their lowest element. Thus filling a room with musical tones is certainly something by which human beings create interaction between themselves and other spiritual beings. Just as human beings draw what we might describe as good beings into their circle through high, meaningful music, So it is also true that repulsive music draws bad astral beings into the spell of human beings, and you would not be very edified if I were to describe to you what hideous astral figures dance around in some modern musical performances when the orchestra plays. These things must be taken seriously. We have seen in this way how our visible world and an invisible world of spiritual beings behind it, work together. The spiritual worlds come to expression in in many other kinds of beings too. Thus we find that where different kingdoms of nature meet, there is also cause for the appearance of spiritual beings. Here we can point to elemental beings who make life properly comprehensible to us. Thus there is cause for the manifestation of certain beings when metal is in contact with the ordinary earth when it nestles against it. Wherever the ordinary earth is permeated by metal veins, we find such elemental beings who are very clever, but who use their cleverness to play tricks on human beings, but who also sometimes work benevolently, whom we call gnomes. Gnome-like beings are found in the interior of the earth, and they are huddled together in certain places as long as the earth is firm, Hundreds of them are there together. If the vein is laid bare, then they burst apart. Everything then is alive and interweaves with such figures who are huddled together there. This is the case, as I said, when the earth comes into contact with the metals, where, in turn, the plant kingdom touches the stone kingdom at a spring, where moss twines around the stones in a fraternal way, where things are together, which, in a manner of speaking, otherwise do not belong together, which come together in an abnormal way, there we find such beings, which we call undines, nymphs. These are also real beings. And finally we find such beings, such elemental beings where the spiritual interacts with the physical, where the animal kingdom touches the plant kingdom in such a way that the beings are at first distant from each other, and later touch. For example, when the bee feeds on the flower. In the space where the bee and the flower are together, taste develops. The sap of the flower is absorbed. There is a taste effect. This effect is perceptible to the spiritual researcher in such a way that they see something like an aura developing around the corolla. This is the expression of the taste process and the whole thing gives rise to the manifestation of beings, which we call sylphs. These sylphs have a special task in the life of the bee, for they appear not only when the little bee feeds, but also in the swarm. There they show the way. They are the guides of the bee. Here we have an example of how spiritual science will one day become useful. The beekeeper's wisdom has emerged from clairvoyance. What is done in beekeeping has been passed down from ancient times. These are instinctive techniques. In earlier times there was probably still a twilight clairvoyance. At that time the beekeepers were able to make use of the activity of the sylphs in order to use them in organizing the bee's life. Modern beekeeping no longer knows anything about this and therefore does many wrong things with its innovations. Modern science lacks the necessary insights. People will be able to shape such natural processes, in which they themselves must be involved, much more productively if they in turn know in a conscious way the workings of the spiritual beings. Anyone who takes a look at life in this field will see that as far as the science of bees is concerned, That which originates from ancient times is good, while the naturalists of today do some dreadful things. It is not at all useful. It misleads people. Most beekeepers are guided by sure instincts and, fortunately, do not pay attention to modern science. Even those things that play a major role, for example, that exist as a theory about the fertilization process, are wrong and cannot stand up to the knowledge that penetrates reality a person gives cause for such kinds of elemental beings to arise when they do not live together with the animal kingdom as people do say in a sports club but for example as the arab lives together with his horse or the shepherd with his flock of sheep the soul effect between shepherd and flock of sheep is similar to the interaction between bee and flower and therefore the feelings between shepherd and flock of sheep are the cause for the emergence of very special beings, the salamanders. These are beings of subtle substantiality, who are very clever, very wise, even if they have no moral responsibility. And their wisdom is expressed in what they whisper to each other of the shepherd's wisdom. What is attributed to shepherds, who are not charlatans, is far from stupidity. It contains a lot of what is whispered to shepherds by such beings as arise from the shepherd living together with the flock of sheep. But anyone who wants to do these studies will not have the opportunity for much longer because such things are dying out. But a while ago it was still possible to do such studies quite well if you found the selfless people in the countryside who knew all kinds of things about the rules of health and healing. They knew very important things, so much so that Paracelsus could say that he had learned more in contact with such people than at any university. That is not without reason. So we see how there is still a region where spiritual beings are in our surroundings, who enter our sphere in a particular way. We mustn't ask, so where do these beings come from? The world has all kinds of spiritual beings in its shallows. It is only a question of the opportunity to somehow bring them to the right place. Even if the comparison is not nice, it is correct. In a clean room there are no flies. But if the house is badly kept, if all kinds of leftovers are left lying around, then the flies are soon there. It is the same in the invisible world around us. As long as people don't give them the opportunity, spiritual beings are not there. But if we give them an opportunity then they are always there, then they enter our circle, then they come into contact with us. This is something that shows us how the human gaze can expand beyond the physiognomy of the outer world. Just as the soul creates its own visage, so the spiritual beings work and are active into our world. And an age will come for human beings when they will necessarily be dependent on shaping their life out of knowledge of this spiritual world. Today they can only tackle the world with their gross senses. But we shall see how we once again advance toward the human being working out of the spirit, how we advance toward an age in which our whole environment will be an expression of the spirit. Even if this age cannot be like the old ages, even if it cannot in the first instance be an age like that of the Gothic cathedrals, or the Greek temples but even in our time of technology and utility it is possible for more to happen than is happening today people have lost the ability to feel to sense to experience spirits that is why we have also lost the longing to express spiritual forms in outer shapes but if the human being once again feels the spirit This can be done even in our utilitarian buildings. What I once experienced as a young person comes to mind. When the builder of the votive church in Vienna, Fürstel, gave his rector's inaugural address on architectural styles, he said, architectural styles are not invented. Architectural styles are born out of the whole culture of the time. This can be shown if we study the architectural style of the Egyptian pyramids in connection with the whole spiritual life of the time. In our time, the only thing to find expression is the materialistic idea of utility. Our time cannot have an architectural style similar to the Gothic or Greek. This is something that anthroposophists should pay attention to. An ocean of culture must be created. From the spiritual life of the anthroposophical movement, out of which forms crystallize again that signify a new architectural style. An expression of humanity is only possible where there is a common spiritual culture. Our time does have a style that is really new, and that is the style of the department store. It is possible that a person looking from a later time into an earlier one will characterize the periods according to their styles. The Middle Ages can be characterized by the Gothic cathedrals alone. All other documents should be disregarded. But we could see the nature of the Middle Ages simply from the Gothic cathedrals. It is the same with the period between the 19th and 20th century. This could be depicted at a later time from the style of the department store. The department store corresponds entirely to the materialistic, utilitarian idea. It shows itself in exactly the same way as the Gothic cathedrals express what lived spiritually in Tauler or Eckhart. But even in our time, it is possible to have a stylistic effect in another respect. Our cultural resources are so capable of shaping form that they could have a much more educational effect on the soul life of the human being than they do today. Today, for example, we have the age of the railways, but as yet no architectural style for the stations, because the human being does not feel what happens when the railway arrives and departs, because the human being does not feel that what happens when the railway runs can be expressed outwardly. Arriving and departing locomotives, that which must enter, can be expressed in the hollow forms of the building. Hopefully, when humanity has mastered airship travel, it will be so far advanced that it will also be able to connect the idea of departure with the place of departure, so that in the latter's shape we will have the feeling that only an airship can take off from there. Spiritual life can be expressed formalistically in everything. Only when we feel that we are surrounded everywhere by the expression of the soul as was the case in the Middle Ages, will the right thing be achieved. This can only happen when such a culture pervades human lives as comes from the views of spiritual science. Spiritual science is not an impractical thing. It is something that must permeate and take hold of the culture of the world. It does not consist of abstract thoughts, but should flow into all cultural currents according to the intention of those who brought them into being. It should come to expression in everything. We should penetrate everything with these thoughts that spiritual science offers us. Let us place another thought before our souls, the thought which can give us a certain awareness of how the spiritual scientific impulses must work if they are to become what they are destined to become. And it is good, especially as we conclude a winter season and go our separate ways, if we depart with our feelings and mind strengthened in this way, if we allow something of this to flow into our hearts and take it out and always feel ourselves to be members of the spiritual scientific stream in the world. It may be that many people outside today still know nothing of spiritual science. Look at these small meetings and look at everything that is being done outside. They know nothing, feel nothing, of the nature of spiritual science. When something like this is placed before our soul, let another image arise, an image to strengthen the soul and the heart, an image we can have when we look back to the very first Christian times, when we see what set the tone there, what lived as a culture in the time of ancient imperial Rome. Let us imagine what it was like to live in this old imperial Rome, how the leading circles sat down one story above the other, and how at the same time a small group lived exiled in the vaults of the cellars below. How they had to set up incense burners so that the smell of corpses emanating from the decaying bodies of the people persecuted and killed from the ranks of this group would not be noticed so much. Let us trace how the wild beasts rushed out of the cages, tearing to pieces those who had been thrown before them from among that small group, Let us descend from the palaces of those who set the tone in Imperial Rome into the corridors where the first Christians, precisely that small group, dwelt, where they erected their first altars over the bones of their dead and established their rituals, invisible to Imperial Rome, invisible like today's followers of a new spiritual knowledge who meet in invisibility, spiritual invisibility, for the official leading culture. Let us trace those down there who were not even allowed to show themselves in the light of day as they lay buried there by the thousand, hidden. They who planted a new spiritual culture in humanity under the surface of the earth when above imperial Rome was working in the way familiar to us. And then let us look at the circumstances a few centuries later What imperial Rome, which was setting the tone at that time, produced has been blown away, swept away. And what remained was that which had to eke out a living in the vaults below, invisible to the eyes of those who set the tone. That remained. This is how cultures arise in the obscurity of concealment. This is how they form. This is how they then emerge from the darkness and we can gather the awareness into our feeling that this spiritual-scientific movement is truly called upon to do something similar to the first Christian movement. No matter how subterranean its existence is at first, no matter how much those who have quite different thoughts in the worlds above ground may regard themselves as being in authority, in a few centuries things will have changed. Then the anthroposophists will have the feeling that they carry up into the light that which now prevails underground, that they carry the spiritual scientific thoughts in the same way that the first Christians carried their culture up from the catacombs. Such an awareness gives us the strength and the possibility to include knowledge of the Spirit in our soul life. In such feelings let us leave, and in such feelings let us come together again. We do not want to pursue abstractions, but something that can become the nerve center of our life. So let us decant into our souls what we hear from higher worlds. Let us endow ourselves with strength and remember a little that the spiritual scientific thought should have grown so close to our hearts that even if we are separated for a while, we are still together in the spirit. And let this feeling bring us together again, The End of Lecture 17